Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 24th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Ride hailing will continue in California for the time being as Uber and Lyft won more time in their appeal of a ruling that ordered them to immediately classify their ride hailing drivers as employees. The companies had five days to agree to expedited procedures outlined by a state appeals court judge, which includes consolidating both appeals and requiring the companies to submit sworn statements that the companies have developed plans to obey an August 10 order to classify their drivers as employees instead of independent contractors. Uber and Lyft confirmed they will not be shutting down their ride-hailing services as they had planned to do if they failed to secure this emergency stay. A spokeswoman for Lyft said that although the company did not have to suspend operations, it does need to continue fighting for independence plus benefits for drivers. A spokesman for Uber said the company was glad that the Court of Appeals recognized the important questions raised in the case and that access to these critical services will not be cut off. In May, California's Attorney General and the City Attorneys of San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego sued Uber and Lyft, accusing them of failing to obey California law by continuing to consider their drivers as independent contractors and they asked the court for an injunction to force the companies to classify them as employees. A San Francisco Superior Court judge ruled that the ride-hailing giants must immediately comply, but gave them 10 days to find a stay order at the appeals court. The two companies are counting on California voters to approve Proposition 22 an initiative they and other gig companies have poured $110 million into to exempt gig workers from the law, Assembly Bill 5, which became effective January 1. With Prop 22, the companies are proposing a third way that they say gives additional pay and benefits to drivers and preserves their flexibility to choose when they work. But the initiative falls short of classifying drivers as employees with all the benefits that entails, including being eligible for unemployment insurance. The U.S. Attorney's Office has reached a $3.5 million settlement with specialty pharmacy advanced care scripts to resolve allegations that it conspired with pharmaceutical manufacturer Teva to employ Teva to pay kickbacks to Medicare patients taking one of its drugs. When a beneficiary of Medicare obtains a prescription drug covered by Medicare Part B or D, the beneficiary may be required to make a partial payment, which may take the form of a copayment, coinsurance, or deductible. Congress included copay requirements in these programs <clears throat> to encourage market forces to serve as a check on health care costs. The anti-kickback statute prohibits pharmaceutical companies from offering or paying, directly or indirectly, any remuneration which includes money or any other thing of value to induce Medicare patients to purchase the company's drugs. 
Advanced Care Scripts served as a contracted vendor for Teva and provided benefits investigation services to certain patients who had been prescribed an expensive Teva drug known as Copaxone. Advanced Care Scripps acknowledged in the settlement that it knowingly enabled a large pharmaceutical manufacturer to pay kickbacks to Medicare patients taking its expensive drug. The FBI agent in charge of the case said, Advanced Care Scripps willingly served as a pawn in a kickback scheme, putting profit over patient needs by Tiva to time its by helping Tiva to time its foundation payments <clears throat> to boost sales of Tiva's own drug, which ACS then dispensed. The current National Law Review spotlight is on a category of COVID-19 related workplace complaints that undoubtedly has caused many sleepless nights for employers around the country. Deaths caused by COVID-19 infections allegedly connected to the workplace. The Law Review illustrates two such cases. One, an alleged wrongful death of an employee from COVID-19, and the other to the death of an employee's spouse. In each case, the plaintiffs allege a lack of effective institutional response to the virus, as well as a failure to warn employees who may have come in contact with the COVID-19 virus in the workplace. The allegations in these cases demonstrate the importance of employers implementing a plan of action to mitigate the dangers to the workforce. First, in Inguinez v. Aurora Packing Company, Incorporated, the plaintiff filed a wrongful death and survival action against the defendant, a meat packing facility. The defendant employed the decedent's husband as a butcher. The plaintiff alleges that the decedent's husband contracted COVID-19 while at work and infected his wife, who died from the virus. According to the plaintiff, the employer knew the employees had contracted COVID-19 at its facility, yet it did nothing to mitigate the spread of the virus. The plaintiff alleges that the defendant was negligent by failing to warn employees of a COVID-19 outbreak and failing to implement an infectious disease preparedness and response plan or infection preventing measures consistent with CDC and State Department of Health guidelines. The plaintiff in that case also asserts that the defendants actively created risk by choosing not to provide employees with personal protective equipment, implement engineering controls to prevent the virus from spreading, take reasonable measures to allow for social distancing, screen and monitor workers, implement and communicate a leave policy, and provide hand-washing breaks, hot water, and sanitizer. In the other case, Montgomery v. Preverain Senior Living, the plaintiffs allege wrongful death and gross negligence under Texas law. The plaintiffs in that case allege that both the deceased and their daughter, one of the plaintiffs, worked for the assisted living and memory care facility and both were exposed to COVID-19 when assigned by their employer to sit for hours at a time, unprotected, with a resident whom the employer knew but did not tell its employees 
had tested positive for the virus. The plaintiffs allege that assisted living facilities have often been described as epicenters for COVID-19 and that the deceased in particular was at higher risk of experiencing severe COVID-19 complications, including death due to being overweight and a minority. The plaintiffs allege that the employer owed the deceased a duty to provide a safe workplace. As the pandemic continues, the unfortunate reality is that legal experts expect to see more illness among employee populations and more litigation alleging that an employer's alleged unpreparedness and lack of transparency relative to COVID-19 resulted in the spread of the virus among an employee population and caused sickness and even death. As ever, mindful employers would do well to understand and follow the public health guidance coming out at local, state, and federal levels. And now our crime report. Lawyer Scott Hughes of Newport Beach, California, has been accused of helping launder at least $20 million in an alleged cryptocurrency Ponzi scheme. He is a personal injury and criminal attorney and reportedly represents applicants in workers' compensation matters in Orange and Los Angeles counties. The indictment claims that Hughes and four other defendants promised guaranteed returns for phantom investments in cryptocurrencies through a company called the Airbit Club. Hughes is charged with conspiracy to commit money laundering and conspiracy to commit bank fraud. Prosecutors say the defendants put a modern-day spin on an age-old investment scam, promising extraordinary rates of guaranteed return on phantom investments in cryptocurrencies. Those arrested have not only been charged with running a multi-million dollar cryptocurrency investment fraud and money laundering ring, but also for allegedly spending their victims' money on luxury cars, jewelry, and homes. These alleged fraudsters pulled out all the stops to sell their scheme to their victims with enticing recruitment events, then shamelessly using proceeds of their scheme to recruit additional victims through even more aggressive and lavish marketing pitches. The defendants participated in in a coordinated scheme in which victim investors were induced to invest in Airbit Club based on the promise of guaranteed profits in exchange for cash investments in club memberships. And in regulatory news, President Donald Trump signed an expansion of the Federal Public Safety Officers Benefit Program to include disability or death from COVID-19 among the criteria for payments. The Public Safety Officers Benefit Program provides a death benefit to the eligible survivor of a federal, state, or local public safety officer whose death was the direct and proximate result of a personal injury sustained in the line of duty. The Act also provides a disability benefit to eligible public safety officers who have been permanently and totally disabled as a result of a catastrophic personal injury sustained in the line of duty. The amount of the benefit is almost $360,000 for eligible deaths and disabilities. 
and the educational assistance benefit for one month of full-time attendance is $1,224. The new law, Safeguarding America's First Responders Act of 2020, is similar to the HEROES Act, which secured benefits for the families of those who gave their lives during the September 11 terrorist attacks. The new act extends the Public Safety Officers Benefit Program by creating a presumption that if a first responder is diagnosed with a coronavirus within 45 days of their last day on the job, the Department of Justice will treat it as a line-of-duty incident and provide the benefits. The new presumption applies unless competent medical evidence establishes that the death of a public safety officer was directly and proximately caused by something other than COVID-19. Before this new law, the illness had to be officially linked to a job-related source, and that burden of proof required painstaking contact tracing efforts. Senator Chuck Grassley, an Iowa Republican, introduced the measure in the U.S. Senate. He said the law was needed to keep the survivors of first responders who die from COVID-19 from having to prove their loved one contacted it on the job. California received a batch of mostly positive pandemic-related news this month with data showing that the number of people dying of COVID-19 is beginning to decline, and hospitalization rates also continue to fall steadily. Governor Gavin Newsom also announced that San Diego County has made enough progress that it could be removed from the watch list. In one of the key pandemic metrics, the seven-day daily rolling average of fatalities fell to fewer than 130 deaths per day for the first time since last month. And the number of hospital patients with COVID-19 has declined steadily also for a month. Community spread also appears to be falling, as the share of Californians who tested positive over a two-week period dipped to 6.5%. This is an early indication that California is stabilizing and moving broadly in the right direction. The state updated its watch list of areas with high case rates, offering a mixed picture around the state. Although Santa Cruz was taken off the list, four small counties, Amador, Mendocino, Inyo, and Calveras were added and must close businesses. The infection rate in San Diego has stayed beneath 100 cases per 100,000 residents for nearly a week. Los Angeles County continues to make progress toward getting off the watch list, with the average daily number of infections, hospitalization, and deaths falling steadily. The county meets five of the six metrics used to measure progress against the pandemic, including testing more than 150 people per 100,000 residents per day and maintaining a healthy margin of available intensive care beds and ventilators. The county continues to make progress on reducing community transmission to meet the most stubborn benchmark, a 14-day average of fewer than 100 coronavirus cases per 100,000 residents for three consecutive days. 
Daily hospitalizations in Los Angeles County have fallen 37% over a month, and the average number of daily deaths has fallen from 43 to 30. The hospitalization rate data is one of the best indicators that efforts over the last few weeks are actually working, in part because it was not affected by the data reporting errors. But the COVID-19-related news is not all good. The number of California workers' compensation claims for COVID-19 continues to climb, as data from the DWC shows that as of August 10, there were 9,515 workers' comp claims reported for the month of July. This brings the total of industrial workers' compensation COVID claims for the year to 31,612 claims, or 10.2% of all California job injury claims reported for the year. Those claims include 140 death claims, up from 66 reported as of July 6. Updated figures for May and June show sharp decreases in COVID-19 claims for each of those months as the number of COVID-19 claims with June injury dates more than doubled from 4,438 claims as of July 6 to 10,528 claims as of August 10. While COVID-19 claims with May injury dates rose from 3,889 cases to 4,606 claims, that's a growth of 18.4%, indicating a time lag in the filing, reporting, and recording of many COVID-19 claims. The CWCI projects there could ultimately be nearly 30,000 COVID-19 claims with July injury dates and 56,000 COVID-19 claims with January through July injury dates. Healthcare workers continued to account for the largest share of California's COVID-19 claims, filing 38.7% of the claims recorded for the first seven months of the year. This was followed by public safety government workers, who accounted for 15.8%. Rounding out the top five industries based on COVID-19 claim volume were retail trade, 7.9%, manufacturing, 7%, and transportation, 4.7%. The updated data is included in the latest in iteration of CWCI's COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 interactive claim application. This is an online data tool that integrates data from CWCI, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and the DWC to provide detailed information on California workers' comp claims from compar comparable periods of 2019 and 2020. CWCI will continue to update this application and expand its features and functions as more data on claim type and average and system-wide costs become available. A proposed new California law, SB 1399, is so far-reaching that it's being labeled by critics as an existential threat to what remains of the once-booming apparel industry in Los Angeles. The apparel industry has already shrunk to roughly 45,000 workers 
after decades of competition from cheap foreign labor. More than a dozen business groups have lined up against the new proposed law, including the Industries Trade Association, the California Chamber of Commerce, and the California Retailers Association. But some high-profile Los Angeles-area companies are backing the bill, including Reformation, which markets eco-friendly women's wear and has a celebrity clientele, and Fashion Nova, the popular fast-fashion retailer, which has been accused of turning a blind eye to wage theft, but recently announced changes to its contracting practices. The proposed new reforms follow those enacted in 1999, four years after 72 undocumented Thai workers were found virtually enslaved in an El Monte apartment complex, stitching together clothing behind barbed wire. The 1999 legislation made garment manufacturers liable for wage violations by their contractors who cut, sewed, and otherwise produced their garments. But worker advocates say that some fashion brands and retailers that carry their own clothing lines have found ways to skirt the 1999 law by employing layers of subcontracting between them and the small factories that actually produce the apparel. Random inspections of 77 garment shops conducted in 2015 and 2016 by the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division found wage violations at 85% of them. Advocates say the situation has not gotten any better with many undocumented Latino immigrants afraid to file wage claims over fears of deportation. A 2016 state law, which applied to multiple industries, tightened up regulations on peace rate compensation, which is traditional in the apparel industry and pays workers for every hem, seam, and cuff they sew. That law mandated paid rest and recovery time and required more detailed payroll records. Labor advocates say the rise of fast fashion retailers such as Forever 21 has contributed to the problem. The Los Angeles company had been the poster child for alleged wage abuses before it faltered and filed for bankruptcy last year. The Los Angeles Times documented in 2017 how the company had been cited in nearly 300 claims since 2007 by workers demanding back pay for producing its clothing. Yet, Forever 21 had not paid anything because it was classified as a retailer. More recently, labor advocates have been critical of Fashion Nova, one of the local industry's rising stars, and they were stunned to hear it had decided to support the proposed new reforms. Opponents contend the two companies are outliers and do not represent the practices of the L.A. apparel industry, where the use of subcontractors to assemble apparel has long been standard. They are calling for better enforcement of existing laws that are on the books. And in medical news, mandates for mask use in public during the recent COVID-19 pandemic, worsened by global shortage of commercial supplies, have led to widespread use of homemade masks and mask alternatives. 
It has been assumed that wearing such masks reduces the likelihood for an infected person to spread the disease. But many of these mask designs have not been tested in practice. So scientists at Duke University went about testing 14 different types of masks to determine which offers the best protection against infection. They demonstrated a simple optical measurement method to evaluate the efficacy of masks to reduce the transmission of respiratory droplets during regular speech. The team found that bandanas, gaiters, and knitted masks are some of the least effective face coverings for preventing the spread of coronavirus. The study was published in the journal Science Advances, wherein researchers revealed that the simple, low-cost technique provided visual proof that face masks are effective in reducing droplet emissions during normal wear. N95 masks, which are often used by healthcare professionals, work best to stop the transmission of respiratory droplets during regular speech. Some of the best masks include three-layer surgical masks and cotton masks, which can be made at home. But more research is needed to identify variations of these results depending on the masks used, speakers, and how people wear them. However, the study provides an idea for companies on how to conduct mask testing to determine which masks are best for employees. The team also emphasized that wearing a mask is a simple yet effective way to stem stem the spread of COVID-19. If everyone wore a mask, 99% of the respiratory droplets could be stopped before they reach another person. This is essential since as many as 40% of infected people do not know they carry the virus and can transmit the virus to equally unsuspected people. Wearing a mask by everyone can reduce the chance of asymptomatic transmission, wherein people who do not feel sick are infected with the virus. The advocacy group Avaz said in a new report that misleading health content has racked up an estimated 3.8 billion views on Facebook over the past year and peaking during the COVID-19 pandemic. The report found that content from 10 super spreader sites sharing health misinformation had almost four times as many Facebook views in April 2020 as equivalent content from the sites of 10 leading health institutions, such as the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The social media giant has been under pressure to curb misinformation on its platform and thus has made amplifying credible health information a key element of its response. It also started removing misinformation about the novel coronavirus outbreak that it said could cause imminent harm. Mark Zuckerberg promised to provide reliable information during the pandemic. But the campaign direct at Avaz said his algorithm is sabotaging those efforts by driving many of Facebook's 2.7 billion users to health misinformation spreading networks. From April to June, Facebook applied warning labels to 98 million 
pieces of COVID-19 misinformation and removed 7 million pieces of content that could lead to imminent harm. It directed over 2 billion people to resources from health authorities. And when someone tries to share a link about COVID-19, it will show them a pop-up to connect them with credible health information. But the Avaz report also said that warning labels from fact-checkers were applied inconsistently, even when misinformation had been found to be false. The report tracked how content from a sample of misinformation sharing websites was shared on Facebook by interpreting available Facebook data between May 2019 and May 2020. So that is all of our news on our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts on our special reports. You can use your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And remember, we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.